Carpenter's Way. If you're not already standing, why don't you get up on your feet, find somebody and tell them good morning.
wisdom came down from above and wrote a new story of his love. He became a mortal, he wore flesh and bone so that we would never walk alone. I'm not Discouragement and pain He's felt my temptation And overcame He overcame everywhere I'm going He's already been Even in the darkness I'm confident That in my weakness Jesus will make me strong Every war
Well, good morning, everybody. You know, um, I love uh, the fact that we have the, the gospel message as presented in our culture today is so relevant to people's needs, and it's not lofty. It's, it's personal, um, but one of the weaknesses of that is that we forgot just, we forget at times how awesome God is, who He is. And that he, he spoke into existence everything that is. And, and this time of the year, I just, when you go on vacation, a lot of you, you take pictures, post those pictures. We've got to have more of those than we got political crap on the internet. But, uh, but you know, when you, when you look out over, we've, we've had like, I think there's like seven families over last month that's gone to Alaska this year. Uh, we've had two families. One right now is in, um, uh, where, huh? In Italy, yeah, but where are they? Where, the, the Venice. Ah, oh, Venice. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's amazing to watch these pictures. And God created all that with a spoken word, not the city of Venice. That was man. But, but spoke it into existence. And when, when you guys sing that song, and Heather, when you hit that note, I mean, I'm just reminded how lofty God is. We, and it's, this morning's message... I'm kind of concerned about because I actually think it may be the most important message you'll ever hear. I really do. But it's not the sexiest message you'll ever hear. It's not like, it's not like hey, Jesus loves me. That, that's great. But I want to make it clear that Jesus' love will not save you unless, you unless you run to him. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, uh, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive. And there, there really is, even in the church, a message that's missing God and, and, and who he is and and we have to wrestle in our brains away from just having good families and good jobs and a great culture and a moral, you know, leadership to our country. Man, we got to get back to God is God. And that song reminds me of that. Thank you for that. It, it really does. Um, uh, it, 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 it does, man. Wow, he's, he's God. <laughs> uh, we've been talking on Wednesday night. and Nah, I'm not going to preach. I'm not going to preach. Take your worship guides. Open them. I'll preach in a few minutes. Um, it's going to be good today, and I know people are watching on the internet on vacation because that's what you do. You never miss a Sunday. <sighs> Me neither. <laughs> but uh, um, be, be praying. We've got about 60 kids and staff right now coming back from Colorado, and they've got about a seven or eight hour trip. They'll be back this evening around five-ish. Don't, don't come at five, you parents. Watch uh, your text messaging and stuff, but, uh, but they'll be back, and they're traveling. And, uh, man, what, a, what an amazing week they had. Um, and by amazing, I don't mean it was kumbaya. I mean, Satan was working and God was winning and people were praying and talking and being convicted with sin. And, and there's some reality. This is a, the world's a mess, and so is the church. And thank God for God, right? I'm going to start saying that. Thank God for God. Thank God for God. It's, uh, but it, it was a good week. Uh, last week, they were, we had a group at preteen camp. And this week, we've got children's camp. Thank you. For my next trick. <laughs> Actually, you, you clapped. I don't know who make that weirder, my bowing. Okay. But, uh, oh, man, take this and pray for our children. These are kids who are going to camp, many of them, for the very first time. This is the first time we've gone. Um, these kids, I think, where, where's Casey? How old are the kids going? Is Casey in here? No, she's probably doing children's ministry because Alicia's not here. These are what? 
First through third. Yes, it, when your mom's not here, you can answer those questions for her. First through third grade. Oh, if I'd have had a camp available when my kids were in first through f- third. I'd have sent them away for the whole summer. <laughs> now, this is great, but, but you realize that we're modeling worship for these kids, and I know, I know they're young, but they're going to hear about God. You know, we... Again, I don't want to preach. I'm pretty excited this morning. So um, be praying for these children. Be praying for the staff. Be praying for the camp. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but this will be week four where we invest heavily in children from VBS to preteen camp to our student camp this last week and now this week, this camp. Uh, Parents are going uh, and and others. So please, please, please be in prayer for them. And um, as, as God works, like nobody's business. It's just a time to get away from all the noise and spend time with God. So, so do that. Don't forget also to be praying for each other. Lots of stuff going on in people's lives. And so we, we have a prayer guide that goes in the worship guide. Um, so please do that. And other things coming up, we, because of this week being a holiday, happy Independence Day, July 4th on Thursday. Make sure that you cook burgers, hot dogs, and watch fireworks. I'm not sure what that has to do with Independence Day, but it's a tradition and we like that. So I hope you have a wonderful time. Lots of people on vacation right now, uh, traveling, so we want to pray for grace as you go. Um, If you're visiting with us this morning, I know last week we had five or six families, and if if you've been here, I'd love to shake your hand. So right after the service, I'm going to hang out up here, and and I'll pray with some folks, and then I'd love to get to know you a little bit. If you have any questions, uh, we'd love to answer them. But that pretty much does it for the announcements. We give you a worship guide so you can concentrate on that. If you're not friends with us on Facebook, make sure that you do that because we put a lot of information out there on a regular basis during the week, each week. So um, I'm going to ask at this time our ushers to come forward to prepare for our offering. So let's talk about that a little bit as they come forward. Uh, I want to uh, say if you are visiting with us, this is the one part of our service we ask you not to participate in. Every November, we have an annual business meeting where we vote on our budget. This is our budget as a family. Uh, Carpenter's Way is not a religious body. It is a family who are the children of God. I'm going to talk about that more later. Having been that, we get together and we set a budget every year, and that's to support our ministries here as well as, well as our ministries abroad. And um, so we commit to that. We are at that time of the year, Carpenter's Way family, where we fall behind because of people being away. So I encourage you to consistently give and, and uh, help us catch up a little bit if you're able to do a little extra. Again, if you, this is not your church home, this is not for you. That's for those who attend here regularly. But we're a family, and, and uh, that's what we do. So I'm going to commit this to the Lord, and uh, we'll get back to what we came to do, worshiping some more, getting into the Word. Uh, thanks again for being here or watching online. Lord Jesus, we, we are thankful for you. Uh, we're thankful, Father, not just for how you make us feel, but what you did outside of our feelings. And I pray this morning that you would help us to uh, wrap our minds around the reality of, of you, God, of, of the Trinity, of Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, sent by the Father, uh, taken out so the Holy Spirit could come and inhabit us. Father, those are doctrinal things that kind of make our heads spin a little bit, but boy, they're important when you step back and look at them. And they were important enough for you to take a full day in a temple area um, to proclaim. And so I pray that, um, Lord, not just that I would speak clearly, but actually you would give us ears that hear. I pray for anyone who doesn't know you today as their forgiver. May today be the day of their forgiveness. Uh, For those of us who do, may we be reminded of your grace and your mercy For those that are traveling, keep them safe. Keep our kids safe, Father. Keep our staff safe. A lot of them on the road, a bunch of vans. Um, 
Lord, just keep them safe. Bring them back to us. Bring them back changed. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, for our children as they go again to camp this week. Would you just be with them and prepare their young hearts? You said, let the little children come to me, so we're sending them to you this week. And I pray that you would, you would meet with them and your, their young hearts. Father, raise up a generation of men and women completely sold out to Jesus Christ. And may it begin with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The offering passes. If you want to stand and worship with us, you're more than welcome. I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see His wounds, His hands, His my Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears. They laid him down in
So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Grace alone, somehow I stand Where even angels fear to tread Invited by redeeming love Before the throne of God above He pulls me close with a nail-scarred hand Into his everlasting arms When condemnation grips my heart And Satan tempts me to Oh 
because this is the truth. Satan wants to lie in the church, and he wants you to think that Jesus Christ came to make you a better version of yourself. He did not come to make you a better version of yourself. He came to resurrect you in the power of Jesus Christ. He came to make you in his image. He came to do that, and we are being lied to. We feel like we have nothing to say to our unsaved relatives and our neighbors and our friends. We feel like we have nothing to say to people who are sexually stuck, people who are trying to find fulfillment in drugs and alcohol. And we're here to tell you this morning that the power of life is not found in our rhetoric, but in the breath that Jesus Christ puts in our lungs. That's what we're gonna talk about this morning. And as we get into the text, as we get into the text, do not get bored. Do not stop thinking, because the ramifications of what Jesus Christ says about himself are in this song. You are not asked to do anything but make yourself a willing vessel. That's all he's asking. We come together to encourage each other, to be reminded it's the power of God through the Holy Spirit living within us. That's what affects the world. It is not a political system. It's not morality. It's not arguing over politics. It is Jesus Christ through us, in us, empowering us, raising us to new life and using us under the power of the Holy Spirit. We're gonna sing this chorus again and I want you to think about what you're singing. No. 
Father God, help us to remember that it is your breath in our lungs. Help me to remember this morning as I open your word that it is your breath in my lungs. We have mixed self-help with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God, and we are messing it up because it leaves us in our lap. So Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that you would help us to remember for a moment in time who you are and therefore who we are in light of you. So speak through your word this morning. May the words of men evaporate so that the words of God will endure forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. You may be seated. Religion could be defined as an organization made up of people, people who are corporately attending to, uh, attempting to find favor with God. Um, for years, Pastor Bill Hybels of Willow Creek Church said that the word religion can be spelled D-O, do. If you do this and this and this, if you do certain things, religion teaches that you may find favor with God in the end. If you go to church, if you hope to help those in need, if you love people, if you're generally seen as a moral or good person, religion often teaches that you then are being used by God to accomplish his purposes in whatever way that particular religion teaches. What Jesus Christ came to do, and I, and I want to set up our text for today. What Jesus Christ came to do, no matter what you've been taught, according to Jesus Christ in this particular text, in the context of his life, was not come to establish a religion. That is not why Jesus came. But rather, make it possible for anyone who desired to have a personal right relationship with God, that they could have it outside of religion. Because while religion might make you moral and help society and has functioning and purposes that are good for society, religion will not fix you and God. It won't. No matter how good of a person you are. In fact, in John's gospel, Jesus said that he was sent to seek and save that which was lost, to offer forgiveness for sin from any who desires it. It is a fair question of what has been lost and what was it lost from. The answer is we've lost a personal and the ability to have a personal intimate relationship with God, a real relationship with God that God established for us to have with him in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned. It was broken. This was a real relationship with actually included daily walks, Adam and Eve with God in the cool of the day, Scripture tells us. Before man chose to disobey God in the garden, man had direct access to God anytime they wanted an interpersonal relationship that was as real as your relationship with your children, your parents, and your spouse. Their bodies were not touched by sin. Therefore, the ramifications of sin on creation weren't there. For instance, there was little pain in childbirth. Working to provide for your family was not a chore. There were no weeds to speak of in the garden, and there was peace between all of God's creations. All of this changed in an instant when Adam and Eve decided to eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. I propose to you that that was a religious decision because it tells us that as Eve looked at the fruit, it was desirable to make her wise. And the name of the tree, knowledge of good and evil, would help her to decide what was a wise choice, a moral choice, and not a wise choice. Things that God wanted to take care of on our behalf. All of this changed everything in an instant with the knowledge of good and evil. Moral choices became the imperative. 
And it will only be in heaven in the future that God will remove the sting of sin on creation when he destroys the old heaven and the old earth and builds a new one, restoring all that we had in the garden at the beginning of time, Revelation 19 through 22 explains. In order to enjoy all of that, however, our sin must be dealt with. You may be a great person. You may disagree that sin is a problem. You may have your own version of what sin is or is not, but there is a truth that doesn't change through time, and God expresses that in Scripture, and our hearts actually know it. If you meet somebody who may be, for instance, a Buddhist who doesn't believe in good or bad, right or wrong, evil or, 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 or righteous, they just believe in one side and the other battling, if you steal their wallet, they will chase you. If you slap them in the face, they will cry foul. Because right and wrong exists. Good and bad. Evil and righteousness do exist in the heart of every man, woman, and child. You go to any place on earth and murder is wrong. They may rationalize it. They may try to explain it away. They may tell why it's part of their culture. But at the end of the day, every group of people that have ever been reached in the farthest places on the globe, always acknowledge at some point right and wrong. This is why Jesus came, to seek and save or rescue the lost by taking the payment for people's sin on the cross. That's what Jesus did. His death on the cross was actually him taking the punishment for our sin. Don't believe that God just overlooks your sin. He does not. It's not true that he ignores your sin. That's not true. He put the penalty for your sin on Jesus' body when he hung on the cross. That is a fact. That's why Jesus died. That's why he hung there naked. That's why they beat him. It is not that cheap. Your sin cost someone their life. And, and I think sometimes in all the rhetoric of love, and we're trying to pendulum swing back today, with those that have been mistreated in the past, even by the church, or not communicated properly like Jesus communicated, the pendulum is swinging now where we're forgetting to tell people you are loved by God, but God's love will not save you unless you repent. That is what Scripture says. If we confess that uh, Jesus is Lord, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, First John says. 1 John 1, 9. John 3, 16, the verse everybody loves. For God so loved the earth, the world, not the earth. He loved the world. That he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him. There's a condition. The idea that there doesn't have to be response and grace is still given is simply not true. It's not biblical. To, to teach that is to take scripture out of its context. And I've, I've got to tell you, as good as it makes people feel to think that, to lie to people, to lie to ourselves doesn't help. That, that's what the Jewish religious leaders were doing, and that's part of why Jesus had the conversation with them he's having today. His death on the cross was actually taking the punishment for the sins of mankind so that we could be restored into a right relationship with the Creator by being declared sinless. In the passage we're going to study together today in John 5, and you can turn there, and I'll meet you there in a moment, we began it last week. We're looking into a conflict between Jesus, who came to seek and save the lost and personally make people right with God outside of religion, including Judaism, and the Pharisees, who are fully invested in getting people to submit to the Jewish religion for their spiritual needs. 
I want to remind you where we ended uh, one of the verses we've, we've kind of referred to in the last two weeks is Luke 5.39. No one, this was an observation Jesus made in Luke chapter 5. No one who drinks the old wine. He's referring to the Jewish religious uh, way of dealing with sin. The sacrificial system, uh, good works, uh, keeping the law. No one who drinks that old wine seems to want the new wine. What's the new wine? God the Father sending Jesus to deal with sin once for all. The old is just fine, they say. Last week in our study of John 5, 1 to 15, we met a lame man or a sick man who for 38 years sat by a pool that he believed periodically whose water was stirred up by an angel. And when that happened, the first one in the pool got healed. Scripture, I told you last week, doesn't teach that that was the case. It uh, was probably a superstition of the day. We don't really know. But the fact is, he complained to Jesus that he can't get healed because nobody helps him in the water. Somebody gets in first. So Jesus goes to this guy and heals him. After Jesus heals this guy from his illness, he does what anybody would do. He picks up his bat and he leaves. The problem is that it's on the, it's on the Sabbath day. And one of the laws that was created by the religious leaders was you don't take a piece of personal property on the Sabbath and move it from a public place to a private place or you could be stoned to death. How crazy is that? Well, guess what? He's healed on the Sabbath at this pool where all the sick people hung out. He picks up his mat just like Jesus told him and told him to go. He goes and it upsets the Pharisees because walking with your mat on the Sabbath broke the law. The guy basically tells them that he was just doing what his unknown healer told him to do. It wasn't his fault. And he blames Jesus. And later in the story, he even helps them find Jesus so that they can deal with Jesus directly and this guy can go on with his life. Here is the problem with the Pharisees and the healed guy who obviously feel like the old wine is just fine. The old wine is just fine if sin is not a problem. Religion's just fine. Pick your religion. Baptist, Assemblies of God denominations, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, even Islam if it makes you happy. If it's all about having a better life experience, find the religion that best suits your culture and your context and go with it. But the problem with people is not social justice. At the end of the day, that is a problem in society, but it's not the real problem. It's a distracting problem that Lucifer throws in front of us, so we'll ignore the real problem. And that is, we are under condemnation with the Creator God, who will not forgive our sin unless we cry out to Him. We can say He does. We can wish He does. We can try to recreate the story. But the problem is, if you read Scripture in its context, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. It's eternal life. You can have life. We sang a moment ago about life being breathed into our dry bones. And, I, and I, I, just, I just want you to understand that the problem with people is not a political one. It's not even a moral one. The problem with people is a relationship with God problem created by sin that God sent Jesus to restore. That's the core. If we're in this research together, and that's what we're doing, those of you who are visiting with us, we're looking, what does the Bible say about Jesus? And we're trying not to make it a Baptist doctrine. We're not making an Assemblies of God or a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness. We're looking at what Scripture says about Jesus. And today's text is going to be Jesus saying what he says about himself. Jesus is going to identify himself once and for all in a public place. The Pharisees demand that a right relationship with God only be found through them and their religious Jewish laws. These rules are completely defined at the discretion or hierarchy of the Jewish religion. 
But the religious Jewish leaders are not the only problem. The problem is that most of the Jewish people, like this healed guy, are okay with the old wine as well. That is to be said that most people you come in contact with, and I want to throw in there, including in the Bible Belt, are more interested in their cancer being cured than they are their sin problem being dealt with. Most people in our culture are more passionate to reach out to somebody who has a heart issue than a spiritual issue because that's too personal. And I believe that's satanic. Because at the end of the day, every one of us in this room, every one of us living in Angelina County, everybody who was ever born except for a couple people in the history of humanity will die. And you will face the judge. Boy, you sound like a preacher today. I know. Sorry, I got excited. Why? Because there's so much noise. There's so much noise. There's always something else to improve. If it's not the way we treat each other in society or the political rhetoric, it's, uh, it's the environment is blowing up. Oh, my goodness, and I found out the other day that we've got to get new child safety seats in order to save our kids from things that didn't kill us. It is a dangerous world in which we live. You can't even buy an organic egg without overcooking it to make sure it doesn't give you salmonella. We have too much information, and I believe it's uh, satanic. Why? Because even in the church this week, I was reading uh, that Southwestern Seminary decided to close down for the most part their sacred music department, and I was blown away at the angry organists who all said that the church is going to lose the most important element of the body of Christ, traditional worship that started in 1785. Think about what I just said. It's exactly what they said. The most important thing in the church is corporate worship from hymns that have been around since 1785. What the heck was the church doing for 1,700 years? It's incredible how stupid we get when we get on our high horse. So I wrote one of them, and that did not go well. Don't argue on Facebook. <laughs> Seriously, you guys, Satan wants us arguing over styles of music. Do you realize what we sang this morning? All of the songs this morning were about the glory and greatness of God. I, the hymnals are fine, but they're not the Savior, and it's not the Word of God. Satan has us off message, just like he had these people off message, and I want to throw it back in your face every week. Romans chapter 3, look at this with me. Look what Romans 3 says. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. Keep going. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. You want to talk about being off message? We're talking about the Old Testament law summarized in the Ten Commandments. What are we doing by lifting up the Ten Commandments? I want to remind you, Christians, the Ten Commandments will not save people or a culture. Only God can do both. The Ten Commandments, according to Romans chapter 3, are there to tell us we can't measure up on our own. But now God has shown us a way of being made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the Ten Commandments. That's heretical, except it's Paul without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God, hold your breath, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. For this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone's sin, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Keep that up there for a second, Kevin, because I want everybody in this room to think about that. 
everybody falls short of God's expectations. Everybody. No matter how nice, good, East Texan, no matter if they're a farmer who fought in the World War II, it doesn't matter how wonderful you are, how many people you, lives you saved, it doesn't matter if you're a first, second, and third responder. The reality is, when it comes to the judge of judges, we all fall short. There is no exemption for homosexuals. There is no exemption for adulterers. There is no exemption for Baptist pastors. We all fall short of God's standard. That was a problem that even Judaism couldn't solve. Judaism, the religion God created, it didn't solve it. That's exactly his point, though. You know, we read the Old Testament. It's a tragic story. Go ahead and keep that up there, Kevin. It's a tragic story of people who turned their eyes away from the Lord. It's a tragic story of people who began worshiping the worship. Let that soak in. They began to worship the religion that God gave them instead of the God of that religion. Let that soak in. What happens when we're most, more Christian than we are Jesus followers? That's what happened to the Jews of their day. And I think that's exactly what God wanted us to see. Because at the right time, God sent us Jesus to say, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to declare you righteous. Keeping it simple and clear, Jesus came to seek and establish a relationship with people. People. God chasing man. Any people who have sinned in any way, who simply want a right relationship with God, who are willing to trust in Jesus for it. Anybody. Once there's a gathering of people who have been made right with God personally through Jesus Christ by repenting of their sin and his work on the cross, when we accept his offer to forgive our sin, we have church. Church is the result of believers who have been reborn into the family of God coming together to remind each other of this stuff. That's church. Church isn't evangelism. Church isn't an outreach. Church is a gathering of children of God to remind each other that it is his breath in our lungs. That's what we do. Because it's easy to forget. What we do together each week is not about trying to gain favor with God. We gather together because we have been accepted, forgiven, and adopted. And in that, we want to we know him. We want to worship him together so that when we go out, we can bring other people into the family of God. We can invite others. We are right with God, and we worship and serve and obey because of that fact. And John 20, 31 tells us that these things are written, the stories that he wrote in the Gospel of John. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life. It is through Jesus we have life. Not through figuring yourself out, not through therapy, although there's nothing wrong with therapy, not through feeling better or looking better, although we appreciate it if you look better. All those things might be fine. They may be fine on a human level, on a YOLO level. You go around once. In this life, there's nothing wrong with that. We painted our entryway last night, yesterday, two days ago. I felt it yesterday, so it felt like a two-day process. Nothing wrong with painting your entryway, but if my whole life is spent on building my house up and painting my entryway in every room in my house and having the most beautiful home and the sweetest car, I may get hailed in this life, but what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? And that is exactly what Satan wants, distracted with things like a blessing of God when in fact they are not. And that's tough. The Gospels were not written to create a new religion or even enhance a religious experience. The gospel according to the apostles and Jesus himself was written so that lost people like us, individuals, could realize that God is seeking a relationship with us 
And the only way that that can take place is through Jesus Christ's offer to forgive sin, right? Did anything I say shock any of you this morning? Okay, I need you to take a deep breath because that's the foundation of which I want us to get into our story. According to the Jewish religious leaders, I, I say again, if you wanted to be spiritually acceptable to God, you must do that through the Jewish religion and its laws, which we're always adding. The funny thing about the Jewish religious leaders, and I don't mean all of them, but most of them, because there were some that were seeking God. But most of them, what they did was, when we couldn't, they, the Jews couldn't keep the Ten Commands that God gave them, the summary statement, the two blocks that Moses carries down the mountain, when they couldn't keep the ten, it was the Jewish idea that they would add 622 more that will help them to keep those. When they couldn't keep the 622, in between the end of the Old Testament written, 400 years exist between the Gospels and the end of the Old Testament, they added on one law, keep the Sabbath holy, and I told you this last week, they add 38 more categories, each having their own laws, to help you keep the Sabbath holy. They included things like, don't pick up a piece of personal property that's in a public area on the Sabbath, or you'll be stoned to death. How stupid is that? I mean, just, just being real here for a second. How stupid is it for a guy who's been sick for 38 years to approach a religious leader in his community and have that religious leader not notice that he's walking healthy, but instead go, you're carrying a mat, dude. That's a lot like being accused of being an alcoholic for having a glass of wine at dinner in a Baptist community. Was that too close to home? I'm sorry. Or because you have a friend that may be a sinner while you're hanging out with that person. We've all been there. Or because you date somebody of another color, they take some abstract scripture out and start telling you you shouldn't date that person. It's what has always been done when we take our eyes off of him. Him. It's all about him. It's only about him. Everything else is noise. He's the only thing that matters. At the end of the day, if you speak in tongues or don't speak in tongues, that's between you and God. But what you do with him is all that matters. That's all that matters. Everything else is noise. Everything. Okay, I'm getting close to our text. Up to this point in Jesus' ministry, his actions and statements have spoken for themselves. He has said things about who he is and why he came, but they were in little areas here and there. We're about a year into Jesus' ministry now, and it's time for Jesus to actually expose his true identity as God to the Pharisees who are asking him. They're asking him why he broke their laws and what right and authority he had to work on the Sabbath. And that's where we pick up our story in John 5, verse 14. Jesus found him, the healed guy, in the temple, and he told him, now, now you are well. So stop sinning or something even worse will happen to you. In last week's message, uh, I basically told you that what the Greek phrase is there or Aramaic conversation is you need to repent. You, you're healed. You're right. Your skin thing, this thing that put you on that mat, it's gone. I took care of that. But listen, buddy, you're walking away from me, and I offer you real healing. It's by my stripes you'll be healed. And unless you turn from your sin, repent, worse is going to happen. He's talking about judgment. This man's response to that is he went and he told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. He turns him in. I want to remind you because there, there, there may be some confusion in this church and those of you watching on the internet. Do not forget, if you want to know who this guy was, he didn't just say, I loved you. He called people to change, to repent. He called people to walk away their flesh-feeding sin. With Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, he said, drop it and follow me. To Peter and John, he said, drop your nets and follow me. 
He was constantly calling people to change. There's a lie out there, even in the church, that Jesus loves you as you are. That's a lie. It couldn't be farthest from the truth. Jesus Christ loves you, and he wants to make you what he created you to be. You are not acceptable to him as you are, or he wouldn't have needed to die. You're not. And that's why I made the bad joke last week that if you look in the mirror and you think you have a big nose, you probably have a big nose, but God didn't save you or love you because you have a a nice nose. You don't need a nose job. You need to get your eyes off your mirror. We live in a culture and even a church that keeps talking about beautiful people and, and, and even taking text of Matthew chapter or Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, it's, just, it's just unbelievable to me how we've taken, you are the uh, workmanship of God in Christ Jesus. And we take that and we tell each other how beautiful we are. You understand that by being the workmanship of God, it means he retooled you and the next sentence tells you why. So that you can now do things he, he wants you to do. In other words, he retooled you not so you would feel better for yourself about yourself, but so you could do what he created you to do in the first place. Work for him, even if your nose is too large. And I say that because I have a relatively large beak. And I was worried about that one day until I find out that as you get older, your nose gets bigger. I think your head gets smaller. I know for sure that the hair on the ear grows longer, but the fact is, it's just reality. You are going to find flaws when you look in the mirror. And Jesus' thing is then put your eyes on me. And I fear that too often in the church we get you to look at yourself. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Even that's about Jesus. Well, I wish I was. We all wish we were. That's what Satan... Okay, back to our text. So the man went and he told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. In case you're not clear, and, and I talked about this last week, what this guy is doing is what your, what your oldest son does with your youngest son when the oldest son is caught easy, eating a cookie. I told you not to eat the cookie before dinner. Did you eat the cookie? And there's chocolate all over his face. What does he say? He told me to do that. It's my little brother, thinking that you're going to spank the little brother. You should wash his face with the harshest towel. Spanking is illegal. The reality is blaming, transferring, this is what this guy does. Instead of repenting, instead of getting on his face, he blames somebody else. Not my fault. How do I know that? Because of the Jewish religious leader's reaction. Verse 16, so the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. Guy's gone. Story done. Man's over. He's physically healed. We have no idea if he bows the knee to Jesus. But I tell you what, he is alive right now. And if he doesn't bow the knee to Jesus, something worse happened to him than 38 years worth of illness. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. And while you're asking him to cure your cancer, you make sure you ask him to cure your soul. Because 100 years from now, that's all that's going to matter. Jesus replied to them, here we go. My father is always working and so am I. Verse 18, so the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him a year into his ministry. For he not only broke the Sabbath, but he called God his Father. I'll explain that in a moment. Thereby making himself equal with God. When Jesus claims to be doing the work of his Father, that pronoun's very important here, instead of our Father, what the Jews said, the Jews would commonly say our Father, our Father. It was corporate. He's saying my Father. The Jewish leaders immediately understood that what he was saying, and John even explains it here, They immediately changed their accusation against him from breaking the Sabbath law to blasphemy. When you read here, they plan to kill him, you go, how could they do that? Well, legally they could. 
He just claimed to be God. He claimed to be equal with God, claiming to be God himself. That's what the Jewish context, that's what they understood. That's why they could immediately and outwardly and officially say, we've got to put this guy to death. Nobody was shocked by that, not the temple people. Remember that when this is happening is on a holy day. There are thousands of people standing around. You've got the Pharisees there. Everybody's around, and these people look at Jesus. They think they've got him trapped. He claims to be the son of God, making himself in Jewish context and culture equal to God and God himself. And the penalty of such a, a, a claim or blasphemy was death. And it is here that the Pharisees officially and openly begin to sing, seek to have our Lord killed. The road to Calvary begins here when Jesus identified himself as God. Now, if you're trying to figure out what Jesus claimed about himself, if you are Jehovah's Witness, if you are an agnostic but you're spiritual, that's the latest thing, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. That's fine, I get it. If you're trying to figure out who this Jesus Christ is, you've got to start with who he claimed to be. And this is the text for that. He identifies himself here as God, equal to God. Rather than denying or clarifying their accusation, Jesus continues in verse 19. Jesus replied to them, I assure you, the Son of God, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, actually the Son is doing. What? For the Father loves the Son and tells him everything he's doing, and the Son will do far greater things than healing this man. You will be astonished at what he does, and he will raise, the dead, uh, raise from the dead anyone he wants to, just as the Father does. And the Father leaves all judgment to his Son so that everyone will honor the Son, just as they honor the Father, again, equalizing himself with the Father. But if you refuse to honor the Son, then you are certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. So pay attention. Jesus just claimed that whatever the Father does, he does. How can this be possible? Because they are not only of like mind, he is the only, <clears throat> he is not only doing what he's told, but he is in full agreement, having full authority, and at, claiming him that, that, that the Father, that Jehovah is his Father, he is in complete union with the Father. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And the wording here in Jewish think and culture and understanding is Jesus is calling himself God. That's why they said, let's kill him. That's the reaction of that. Otherwise, killing him is not the penalty. If he weren't claiming to be God, they couldn't kill him. But this isn't the only place in the Gospels where Jesus claims to be God either. In John 10, verse 30, Jesus says, and I quote, I and my Father are one. It doesn't get any more clear than that. I and my Father are one. In John 20, 28, Jesus allows doubting Thomas to fall and worship at his feet when he says to Christ, my Lord and my God. He doesn't say, get up, don't blaspheme. Remember, John does that. Others do that. The disciples, when Paul uh, is ministering and people want to worship him because of the supernatural power he has, he says, I'm not God. I'm the servant of God. And they start forcing him to take the name of Zeus, if you remember. Jesus doesn't stop him. Jesus in Matthew twenty-two forty-four, Jesus reminds the Pharisees that David himself referred to the Messiah as my Lord, which is a Jewish reference to God. And he doesn't correct them. Jesus is teaching them, I'm that guy. I'm God. I am the Lord. Matthew 28, verse 20, Christ tells the disciples that he would be with them always, even to the end of the earth, referring to the attribute of omnipresence, which belongs in Jewish theology only to Jehovah himself. 
Throughout the Gospels, Jesus Christ, the Christ heals people by forgiving their sin. And when the Pharisees confront his claiming to they have the authority that only God would have, he simply agreed. That's true. Why is that a problem for you? These are the claims of Christ himself about his own deity. But beyond this, the scriptures, old and new, also clearly claim that Jesus is God. In Hebrews chapter 1, and this is the most remarkable one of all, it has Jehovah the Father speaking, and he says, your throne, referring to Jesus, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever. So you've got the Father bowing knee to the Son, the second member of the Trinity. How is this possible? Not because there's three gods, but because there's one. In the beginning, God, singular, created the heaven and the earth, and the Word was God. Uh, I'm sorry, that's John 1. Word was God, and Word was with God. In, in Genesis chapter 1, you have God creating everything with a word, a singular, and he said, let us make man in our image, which is plural, and after he creates man, he says, it is good. He, not they. Scripture's clear. It, it, it may be hard for us to understand, to get our minds around, and it may be convenient for Satan to twist, but the truth is Jesus Christ is claiming to be God. Josh McDowell, in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which many of you ran, uh, read back in 1948, I know I aged myself, but uh, he said there are three options with Jesus Christ's claims about himself. Number one is that he is a liar. Anyone who has read the teachings of Jesus Christ has to acknowledge that he claimed to be God. You, you cannot read the Gospels and not see that. If you're going to try to create original religion that just teaches that Jesus is merely the Son of God, you've got to do what the Jehovah's Witnesses did, and they take a couple verses and mistranslate them, on purpose, intentionally, and saying this is a better translation without knowing it. That's what you do. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses do in John chapter 1. They change it. In the beginning was a God, is what they say. It, it's heresy. It's 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 in... It's wrong. You just can't do that. The Greek says what it says. It says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's talking about Jesus. It goes on in that text. The Word was God. So Jesus can't make the claims he does and not be a liar if he's not really himself. If he's not God, he would be a, a liar. There is another option, though, and that's he's crazy. Anybody who claims to be something they're not, which is happening a lot in this culture, who claims to be something they are not but believes it is, in fact, mentally ill. So there is another option, and that's that Jesus Christ thought he was God, but in fact wasn't God, and therefore is mentally ill. That's not that far-fetched, because if I claimed to be Jesus Christ today, you would laugh, and then when I said it 20 more times, eventually you would remove me from the pulpit and get me mental health. Kevin Hudson, who is a cardiologist, would be up here finding a doctor of psychology to try to help me if he actually believed that. That's what we do with people that think wrong about themselves. The third option, and the only other option, is that Jesus Christ was exactly who he claimed to be, that he actually is Lord. The only way for us to decide which of these three is true is to not only take his claims at face value, but to actually look at what he did to see if they verify or validate his claims. Lots of people have claimed to be God. This fact actually takes us back to our story in John 5. Jesus is in the temple area, being confronted publicly by all the religious leaders on a holy day with thousands of other religious people around watching who are going to Judaism to find salvation, having healed a guy who all of them would have known were sick or at least heard that he was sick. So they're seeing this guy run around. Jesus has set up. Remember last week I told you that, that Jesus had to step over a lot of sick people to get to this one guy? And it stands against the fact that Jesus came to just heal people. Jesus came to heal that guy on that day. 
How do I know that? Because he had to step over hundreds of other sick people to get to this one guy. Why does he heal this one guy? Because he knew that this guy would not worship him, but end up at the temple area celebrating on the holy day so that he could go and with all of his friends and family and all of the community there, God and everyone, he could finally take a stand as to who he was. He set this up. Only God can do that. And it is incredible. Having set up this confrontation, or self-declaration, by healing this one man at the pool of Bethesda area, Jesus continues now to double down on his ability to forgive sin and validate his claims. Look at verse 24, okay? We're gonna move along now in the text. I assure you, okay, if you have a King James Bible, it says verily, verily. (laughs) More modern versions say truly. But when Jesus, God, assures you of something, you should really listen. I assure you, quote, listen up, pay attention, Those who listen to my message and believe in God who have sent me have eternal life, present tense. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death to life. You think that the Pharisees were ticked off there? (laughs) Wow, this really set them off. I want you to understand, Jesus is super bold. He's not poking the bear. He's taking a baseball bat, you'd get it like a, you know, about that big, and he's banging it on the head. He said, not only do they not have to be Jewish, not only did I not, I'm not worried about your little Sabbath laws, but I'm here to tell you that anybody who believes in me is already saved. And I assure you, second time he says it, verily, verily, listen up, that the time is coming, in fact it is here, when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, he doubles down on being equal to God, and those who listen will live. The dead listen to this guy? The Father has life in himself, and he has granted his Son to have life in himself. He's claiming to be life, and he has given him authority to judge all mankind because he's equal with God. He's the Son of God. I mean, so now Jesus just put his bat down, and he's poking him in the eyes because these guys were constantly condemning people based upon a law they had established, telling them that God was going to validate their judgments on them, and Jesus is going, I'm equal with God. In fact, I am God. And I got to tell you something. The Father has given me all authority to make these decisions. In fact, they've already been handed down. And if you believe in me now, you're already saved. But those who have died, you know what? They've heard it too. And if they believe in me, they're saved. Don't be so surprised. (laughs) You think he knows what they're doing emotionally? Take a breath. This is actually funny. Because every time he goes deeper, he knows their emotions and he reacts. Don't be surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves hear the voice of God's Son and they'll rise again. Those who have done good will rise to eternal life and those who have continued in evil will rise to judgment. Can you imagine what those who are listening are thinking? What did he say? My hearing isn't what it once was. Did he just say that he's the judge? Did he actually say that, he'll, that, that the dead hear him? Did he actually say that he will raise the dead? On top of claiming to be equal to God. Now, now look, I know this is boring. I'm fully aware. This isn't as exciting as, I don't know, talking about the political arena today. But you realize without this, we are hopeless. Jesus is right now. We're in this study. We should have one week of study on this. Who does Jesus say that he is? This whole thing, it's all that matters. Everything he does points to this explanation. On top of claiming to be equal with God the Father and that whatever the Father has done, he's done as well, now he's claiming to have authority over eternal life, over death, over judgment, and to be heard by those who have already died. Within this statement alone, Jesus speaks of four areas in which he has power over death and offers life. 
The first one, John 5, 24 and 25. I assure you, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. Please notice that you've got to respond and listen to his message. Also, I assure you that a time is coming, in fact, it is here, when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. As Jesus lays out for the Pharisees who they are looking at, he actually claims the power and authority to take a sinner who is spiritually dead in his sin, raise him to new life with resurrection power into spiritual life, completely in and of his own power and authority. That should not surprise you because Paul explained exactly how that happens in Ephesians chapter 2. Take a look at it with me. Once you were dead. So, Zach, when he would travel and do magic, um, he has a picture of, it's a classic Christian picture. Go ahead and leave that up there, Kevin. But he has a classic Christian, Christian picture of a person drowning in the water and Jesus is reaching down to save him. Can you visualize that picture? Jesus reaching down to the drowning person to save him. There's only one problem with that. Theologically, it's crap. People aren't drowning without Jesus. They're dead. Without Jesus' resurrection power, you're dead. There's no life. You're not treading water. You see, that's why we think we can pick a religion or pick a belief system or pick a moral law because we think we're treading water. I got news for you. Ephesians 1 or 2 tells us that once we were dead. We weren't treading and figuring it out for ourselves. We were dead at the bottom of the sea, laying lifeless on the bottom, doomed forever because of our many sins. We used to live just like the rest of the world, full of sin, obeying Satan, the mighty prince and power of the air. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passions and desires of our evil nature. I, I'm not going to spend time on that right now except to say Satan wants you even as a child of God chasing your own nature. If you are inclined to adultery, you don't have to feed it. You've been resurrected and given new life. The temptation may be there, but the way of escape is promised. If you are a child of God struggling with same-sex attraction, the temptation may be there, but you don't have to feed it. You don't have to feed it. That's what the world does. You are called to live above it in the power of God. We have forgotten the power of God. I said that like a black preacher. That was pretty good. Even I got chills. I'm not done. Let me keep reading. We were born with an evil nature, and we were under God's anger just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so very much that even while we were dead, not treading water, dead. Even while we were dead, because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's favor that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ, and we are seated with him in the heavenly realms, all because we are one with Christ Jesus. And so God can always point to us as examples of his incredible wealth of his favor and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done through Christ Jesus. God saved you by his special favor or grace when you believed. There's still a reaction. There it is. Still have to believe, responding. And you can't take credit for it even if you did respond. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can, get boast, can boast or get cocky about it. For we are God's masterpiece. Do you realize that now within context, he's talking about God's work, not your looks. 
not your self-feels, not, not, not all what the world says you're valuable. We're talking about God's masterpiece. He's recreating you. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why? So that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We're his. We're his workmanship. How is a spiritually dead corpse raised? By Christ's power. You hear him call out to you and offer to forgive your sin. You accept his offer. You believe he's able to do it, and you are raised. Religion, 12-step programs, psychology can offer some moral and emotional help, but only God through Jesus can raise you from the dead. If you are not his child this morning, don't run to Mark, run to God. Don't run to Oprah Winfrey. Run to God. Don't run to the Southern Baptist Convention or your favorite Assembly of God preacher. Don't run to Joel Osteen. You are not the I am. He is. Run to Jesus. If you are Jehovah's Witness today, run to Jesus. If you're, if you're Mormon, if you're a Muslim, run to Jesus. Can Muslims be saved? Anybody can be saved. If you run to Jesus, what do I do when I get there? Tell him what you need. Tell him you're, you're spiritually dead and you need life. And he'll give graciously, Scripture says. John 5, 26, Jesus continues by saying this crazy statement. The Father has life in himself and has granted that same life-giving power to his Son. Another translation says the Father has life in himself and he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Our physical life is derived from the dust of the ground. We all know that in creation, right? When God breathed life into it with words. But Hebrews and Colossians tells us that Christ, the second member of the Trinity, was the member of the Godhead who created all things and brought life from lifeless dust. Not just ours, but Christ's own life was completely originated in himself and eternal as well as self-sustaining, even in his death. Jesus said in John 10, 18, no one can take my life from me talking about his coming death. Nobody can take my life from me. I lay it down, my life voluntarily, for I have the right to lay it down, and when I want to, also have the power to take it up again, for my Father has given me this command. Jesus has life in himself. He actually will give up. Remember on the cross? He said, into my hand, thy hands I commit my spirit, King James. Remember that? Jesus had to give up his life. It's deified suicide. He gave him his life up because he can't die. He's God. He gave his life up. And guess who resurrected him? The third member of the Trinity who was also Jesus Christ and the Father resurrected him to new life. He brought himself back to life because only God can do that. This guy who's talking to these people, he's God and in him is life. This Jesus is not a religious figurehead or a great prophet. He's God. And all you have to do is read his own claims and power and authority. Being God, Christ not only is the author of life, but is life. And he shares that life with all who trust in him. The final two pieces of authority that he has over death and power and resurrection in all humans are found in verses 28 and 29. Don't be surprised. Third time he says it. Indeed. The time is coming when the dead in their graves will hear the voice of the God's Son, and they'll rise again. Those who have done good or repented, remember, that's exactly what he told the guy, stop sinning. Those who have turned to God, those who have done good, will raise to eternal life. And those who have continued in evil will also be resurrected into judgment. There is no getting out of this life. Once conceived, there's no exit plan outside of Jesus. If you have not run to him to avoid judgment, 
to be adopted into his family, today is the day of salvation. Don't run to me. I'll be here. I'll pray with you, but I can't save you. My goal is not to get you in our baptism. My goal is to get you adopted into the family of God. The price has been paid. The blood has been shed. The offer made. All you've got to do is accept. Child of God, this never was about you, and it never will be about you. We've got to get our eyes back on Jesus. It's not about our country. It's not about our politics. It's not about morality. It is about Jesus and about telling anyone and everyone who is spiritually dead that they too could be resurrected to new life through the power of that man. That's why he came. He did not come to make the sick well. He came to make the spiritually dead alive. I was going to read you Revelation 20 and 21. You can read it on your own. It talks about Jesus on the throne as God, raising everything up to what it was supposed to be. Read it. I know this is intense. I know it's deep. And I know these facts as to who Jesus said he was. It's, it's, you've accepted it, so it's easy to blow this off. But this is pivotal. It's not what John MacArthur says about Jesus that matters or Oprah Winfrey or even John Lennon. Although I like the song. What matters is what Jesus said about himself and whether or not He could prove it. Anybody could make claims. So Jesus finishes by answering why you could believe him. Verse 30, I do nothing without consulting the Father. I judge as I'm told. And my judge is absolutely just because it is according to the will of God who sent me. It's not merely my own. If I were to testify on my own behalf, my testimony would not be valid. Can I just add that Jesus understands the weakness of self-testifying? I love that. But someone else is also testifying about me, and I can assure you that everything he says about me is true. In fact, you sent messengers to listen to John the baptizer. I changed it from Baptist because too many people think he was a Southern Baptist. Did he set them up for that or what? He said, there's somebody else testifying right now, and actually you know he's worthy of testifying because you sent spies to listen to what he taught. And he preached the truth. But the testimony about me is not from a man, though I have reminded you about John's testimony, so you might be saved. Wow. So you might be saved. Do you realize? Take a breath again. So Jesus is talking to these blockheads. They want to kill him, and he's still pleading for their souls. If you are a Christian and conservative and feel like the world is surrounding you with its immoral, whatever you want to add, socialist, it is. Well, I want to fight back. You just be like Jesus. Tell the truth. Well, they crucified him. They might do the same to us. But we're resurrected. (laughs) We're resurrected into new life. There's no more pain and crying and tears. I don't want to be persecuted. Nobody wants to be persecuted, including Jesus. This is our task. I'm a bigger baby than anybody in the room. I had to make my neighbor come over and take the snake out of my living room that was that big. I wasn't raised in Texas. I was raised in California. I'm a big weenie. He's worth being punished for. Teenagers, Satan will offer you lots of things to live for. 
only one man matters. Moms and dads, work twice as hard at making sure your kids know the God of the Bible than you do that they go to a good prom with the right dress. Spend more time focusing them on Him, not on the government or yourself or your church. Focus them on Him. A hundred years from now, that's all that will matter. John shone brightly for a while, and you benefited and rejoiced. But I have a greater witness than John. My teachings and my miracles, they have been assigned to me by the Father, and they testify that the Father has sent me. Now you know why Jesus healed. Validation of his claims. Reading on, and the Father himself has also testified about me. All right, so we've got his, his actions, his miracles. We've got John the baptizer and now the Father. You have never heard his voice or seen him face to face. And you do not have his message in your hearts because you do not believe me, the one who, who he sent to you. You search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life. Wow. But the scriptures point to me. Be careful not to worship Christianity. My assembly of God friends who grew up assembly of God, be careful not to be too assembly of God. My Southern Baptist brothers and sisters, be careful not to be too Southern Baptist. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me so that I might give you this eternal life. Your approval or disapproval means nothing to me because I know I don't have God's love with, you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you representing my Father and you refuse to welcome me even though you readily accept others who represent only themselves. No wonder you can't believe for you gladly honor each other but you don't care about the honor that comes from God alone. Yet it is not I who uh, will accuse you of this before the Father. Moses accuses you. This is the first time in this conversation their hearts drop. They don't care what he says about God. They're, they don't really know what to think with John the baptizer, and what he claims about himself is irrelevant to them. But this one hurt, because they believed Moses. Well, let me read it. Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, on whom you set your hopes. But if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me, because he wrote about me. And since you don't believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I said? Jesus doesn't hate these men, though, no matter what my rhetoric sounds like. He's pleading with them to have eternal life. And now you know the answer to the question that the Jewish religious leaders asked Jesus. What authority do you have to defy the laws of our religion? I'm God. Now you know the answer to the question that the culture is asking you. Who are you as Christians to tell me that my lifestyle is sinful? We don't. He does. But he's not obsessed with your lifestyle. He's obsessed with your life. You're dead. He's offering to resurrect you. No matter what your lifestyle is. Now you know. Now you've heard. Now you've read what Jesus said about himself. My atheist friend, my Mormon friend, run to Jesus. If you don't, you will be judged by Jesus. I don't say that harshly. Jesus didn't say it harshly. He came to save the judged. My Christian friend, those of you who accepted Christ as a young man or woman, now that you know 
Start bowing to Jesus again. Not your political, moral, personal agenda, but Jesus, his agenda. The words of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 55 are, Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call him him now while he is near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish every thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God, for he will forgive generously. Never settle for Christianity when you can have Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. I'm going to give you a moment to talk to your Father in heaven. If you're not his child, then you can talk to the Creator God. He's listening. If you don't know him this morning, I'm going to challenge you to dare him to prove that he's there. Ask him to reveal himself to you in a way you've never seen before. Don't be afraid. He will. Child of God, bow the knee to Jesus again. Pick up your cross and follow Him. Even if you don't like what I'm teaching, just bow the knee to Him. You know, I'm not asking you to bow the knee to me or my teaching. Bow the knee to Him. If you're so sure I'm wrong, follow Him. Lord God, thank you for patience and never stop calling us. Thank you that you were very clear as to your identity. Thank you for taking on the form of a servant for 33 years living among us, offering us eternal life, offering the Jews eternal life. Thank you, Father, for not giving up. Thank you for offering to resurrect our hearts and our lives. And if there's anybody here who does not know you, if there's anybody here who has not bowed the knee to you, may today be the day they bow. And for us, Father, your children who are trying to balance out citizenship in this wonderful country and citizenship in heaven with different ideas of what that should look like, Father, I pray that we would take our eyes off of our own rhetoric and our own thoughts and put them on you. We love you. We just need to trust you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study is going to start in five minutes. I went a little long because I had really important stuff to say. Um, so if you don't have one, we'd love to introduce you to a Bible study group. We'll discuss these things together. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon and a 4th of July.